the humble brag. Um, have you heard of this? Anybody? Um, how, many, how many of you have done this? Humble brag? Okay, yeah. Yeah, you all have. Okay, you don't have to necessarily admit it, I suppose. Uh, you absolutely have. So have, so have I. Um, the, the phrase was originally coined by television writers from, from the show Parks and Rec. Uh, and let me, let me read the, the definition for us here. The humble brag, an ostensibly modest or self-deprecating statement whose actual purpose is to draw attention to something of which one is proud. Uh, so essentially, the humble brag is like a sneaky way of bragging about yourself uh, so you don't have to feel quite as, uh, you know, bad about it, right? Um, let me give you a few examples. Like, like if a friend of yours comes and, and they say to you, gosh, we are just so exhausted right now uh, from our two weeks in Fiji, right? It's like, boo-hoo, right? Big deal, okay? <laughs> or, or, man, life has gotten so complicated since I got that huge raise at work, really, Okay, yeah, that's, that's too bad. Or, or you know, one of, my, one of my favorites as a parent, right? And some of us parents, we've, we've done this, right? I'm just so worried about my kids right now. I'm not, I'm not sure they're being challenged. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I've met your kids, right? That might, that might not be the problem, right? And, and, I, and I know, right? I'm, I'm guilty of this. I, I have done this as well. It's, 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 sort of, it's just sort of what we do. And here's what I love about the humble brag. We humans are so obsessed with ourselves that we're literally finding new ways of self-promotion. And we do it all the time. In fact, a couple of years ago, two Harvard neuroscientists discovered that when we talk about ourselves, it actually triggers the same pleasure centers in our brain as food and sex. But we didn't really need a study to tell us that, did we? We, we know that, and we, we gravitate in that, and so easily uh, we end up like, like this guy. Let's, let's watch. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently, a bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right, and then I, and then myself, right, me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, me. the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Oh, well, didn't mean to waste everybody's time. <laughs> Telling my nothing story. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? Uh, isn't that a great question? What, what is it about the human condition... Uh, that we get something out of that, that we continue to go, to go back there and find ways uh, of self-promotion. I mean, I can could, I could tell you one of, the, one of the reasons I do it, at least. Um, I, I think in many ways I, I like to, to brag about things I'm good at or, or proud of uh, because it kind of distracts away from all the other things that I'm not, right? 
it's, it's sort of like classic misdirection, right? If everybody's, if everybody's looking over there and I'm pointing over there, uh, then maybe they won't see here, right? Or, or deep, deep within. I mean, we, we even brag about being Christians, don't we? I mean, we've got we to be a little more subtle here, and we know that because, you know, Jesus and humility, they sort of, sort of go together. But we, I mean, we're pretty good at it. We found, we found our ways. I mean, just listen to the ways that we, we talk down about those who believe differently from us, right? Uh, as if you became a Christian because you're so much smarter than Stephen Hawking, right? Or, or even if you listen to the ways that we sometimes uh, talk about others. You know, you know we, we look down on those who, and their, their moral choices and their decisions, and we say something with, with very feigned compassion, like, oh, gosh, I just, how could anybody live like that, you know, from our position of superiority? Or we even gossip and call it a prayer request. I mean, we've gotten pretty good at this over the years, haven't we? But we weren't the first people to be so gifted. The church in Corinth, that we began studying last week, they, they were just, just as good, maybe even a little bit better. And so last week together began our study, our six-month study in 1 Corinthians. It's this ancient letter written so long ago, uh, written to a church with all kinds of problems. I mean, on the one hand, they had everything going for them, right? God was at work there. It was, it was obvious. It was beautiful. And yet, on the other hand... Problem after problem after problem, but their biggest problem was that they didn't think they had any problems. They were a mess, but they were not a Christian. Now, if that, if that describes you this morning, maybe, maybe it's because you think it all just seems so foolish, right? And, and we Christians, we're, we're just a bunch of fools for believing this. Well, I mean, to some extent, the Apostle Paul, from a human perspective, he agrees with you. At first glance, this, this appears as if nothing but foolishness. From every human angle, God's way is foolish. If you have a Bible, uh, we're still in chapter 1, uh, first, first Corinthians. You can follow along if you like. We'll have some of it up here as well. But, but verse, verse 18 here uh, is key for the whole passage. Uh, we're going into to chapter 2 even this morning. But this, it all hinges on this, this first verse uh, in, in verse 18, Paul says that basically that there are two kinds of people in the world. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two kinds of people, those who are, who are being saved, right, who embrace the cross of Jesus, and then there are those who are dying. And if, if you're not a Christian, you might find that really offensive. I don't, I don't blame you. But Paul is saying that if you reject Jesus, then the cross is, is nothing, nothing but foolishness. And honestly, I mean, even if, even if you are a Christian, that, that shouldn't surprise us, right? We, we put our hope in this ancient tool used for the most brutal form of execution, a cross. We worship a a crucified Messiah, a man who, who faced the death penalty. Of course it seems ridiculous to us. And, and, I, and I know this isn't, this isn't particularly inspiring, but one of the reasons that I believe all this stuff is actually true is because who would make it up? I mean, God on a cross? 
A God who, who suffers on, on behalf of his people? I mean, who wants, who wants to believe that? If there are two paths, the fork and the road is the cross. But why is it foolishness? Verse 22, he explains. He says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, so everybody's looking for answers, right? It doesn't matter who you are, us, them, right? We're all looking for something to believe in, something to build our lives on, something, something to tell us that life actually means something, right? Anything. And Paul says for the first century Jewish people living in that, in that culture, they wanted signs, miracles. They wanted a show of God's power. Essentially what they wanted was a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans, right? Give them their, their, their land back, their lives back. They didn't want someone to change them, but to change their circumstances. And I can, I can appreciate that, right? I mean, if Jesus is real, why doesn't he just prove it, right? Why doesn't he just show up with some fireworks and fix all of my problems? And, and for some of you, maybe that's, maybe that's why you just, just quickly discard all this stuff, right? And you just think, if, if, if Jesus would just show himself to me in some, you know, practical way that fixes some of my stuff, well, then I'd believe. So that was, that was one area. The others, for the, the first century Greeks, the Gentiles, Paul says that they, they essentially wanted wisdom. And that, that, I mean, you can, you can study that, that time period, and that's, that's who they were, right? They were into to philosophy and, and fancy rhetoric. Their, their heroes were people like Plato and Socrates, right? And so they wanted answers, right? Uh, they wanted a, a clear understanding of, of reality, and they wanted some wise tips to, to live by, to understand how life works, works best. A God who suffers? cross? I mean, that raises way more questions than it answers, doesn't it? And again, I can, I can appreciate that, right? I mean, if Jesus is true, why do I still have so many questions? I mean, why, why didn't he come with a, a textbook to have it all sort of uh, explained for us or, or a self-help manual with some, you know, wise tips to be able to figure out the way it all works best? Why don't we have all the answers that we want? And for some of you, you think, if, if only, if only I could get the answer to all of my questions in some practical, helpful way, well, well then, then I'd believe. Can you imagine entering any other relationship like that? I'll marry you if you tell me every single thing about yourself in ways that are completely, totally, 100% satisfying, leaving no question left unanswered. How's that working out, right? That's just not how, how it works. And, and listen, it's, it's, not that, it's not that God is anti-intellectual or anti-wisdom. Quite the opposite. He gave you your brilliant mind and your unending quest for answers. You don't have to check your brain at the door to become a Christian. In fact, if you, if you do, you've missed something. But what so often happens for, for us and, and, and clearly for them is that we end up putting our hope in how smart we think we are. 
how, how sophisticated and, and educated we appear to the people around us. And for the Corinthians, their social status was based on who's smartest. That, that was kind of their, their social pecking order. But for Paul, true wisdom begins with faith. And so in, in other words, at the end of the day, here, here's what we find most foolish about the cross. And it, it doesn't matter who you are. Paul's telling the believers in Corinth, arrogant, self-absorbed, boasting. He's telling us, complacent and, and self-assured. If you want to boast, boast in this. You are worse off than you think. That's what, he's, that's what a cross says. Because a few miracles can't save me. A change in my circumstances cannot save me. Uh, answers, even a lot of really good answers, cannot save me. Wise tips for living cannot save me. God has to come. And he has to, to die. For, for me, for, for my messes. And there's not a single thing that I can do to earn it. And if you don't find that offensive, then you're not listening don't be surprised when people reject the cross. You, you cannot get any clearer than a cross in saying, you are worse off than you think. And who wants to believe that? Of course it's foolishness to those who have rejected it. There's only one thing that we can boast in. Well, don't worry, it gets worse, okay? That's just the first section of what Paul says. Because it's not just that God's way, the cross, seems foolish. It's that even us, right, his people, are foolish. Look what he says in verse, verse 26 as he continues his argument. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And, and the, the irony here is that in this ancient church, uh, would have made, been made up certainly of the poor and powerless nobodies. That would have been prevalent in a culture like theirs. Uh, but we'll, we'll see as we continue this study, that's, a, that's not all who's there, right? There, there are people of influence and power and money there within that congregation. And what else I find interesting about this culture there in Corinth is that unlike the rest of the Roman Empire, uh, Corinth was a fairly unique city. You know, for most places around the Roman Empire, riches and status was a family thing, right? You were just sort of born into it. But there's a lot of evidence that, that suggests that Corinth was actually a place where there was a lot of new money, of, of new, new growth. And so it made it a, a culture of achievement, of, of social climbers, right? Of, of people moving to Corinth to make it big. And still Paul says to them, verse 27, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And skip down to verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul there, with, with those words in his letter, he's, he's quoting Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah was a prophet that lived several hundred years before all of this. Uh, let, me, let me read what Jeremiah says. That way we kind of get the fuller context 
of what Paul is getting at. Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah writes, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. I've got to tell you, when I read that this week, it kind of made me think of us. Because if there is anything we... 21st century American Johnson Countyans boast in. It's those three things, isn't it? How smart we think we are. Man, we got it all figured out, don't we? How much junk we happen to own. So rich and got our stuffs together. And how safe or in control or powerful, how mighty we think we are. That's that's us. And so you and I, we've, we've got our credentials, don't we? Just remember that God sees beyond all of that. Beneath all the things that we let define us, and he knows who we really are. He knows how foolish we are. I mean, just look at our choices, right? Even our, even our best ones. He knows how weak we are. Just, just look at your inability to change. He knows how, how low and despised we are. Just look at our, our sin, right? The way that we even hurt the people that are closest to us. And the many ways that we reject the one who made us. And yet I love what Paul is getting at here, even though it, it cuts deep. What he's really saying to the, the church there in Corinth, what he's trying to get us as followers of Christ now to get to understand and to embrace is that only those who recognize, who get a glimpse of how foolish and how weak and how low and despised we really are, only people like that would, would have a savior like this. Only people who see how low, how needy, how desperate we are would, would want Jesus. And so if you want to boast, Paul's saying boast in this, God picked you because no one else would. Ouch. That hurts. Nathan, take it down a notch. Listen to what one commentator writes. He's paraphrasing Paul's words here. He says, Who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God? God doesn't choose people who think they have it all together. He doesn't go after the ones who have a long list of things that they, are, that they think are, they're so confident that they can boast and brag about. He, he just knows us too well. And the reality is he is not fooled by our misdirection. I, I am convinced that if we really knew each other, we really knew each other, everything, every regret, every temptation, every impulse, every thought. I mean, if you really knew Nathan Miller... I'm convinced you'd want nothing to do with me. And we're so convinced when we, when we read about the cross, when we understand what Jesus did, uh, that, it, that it says a lot about who we are, right? Um, that, that Jesus choosing to rescue us uh, says a lot about who we are, and certainly it does, right? Uh, and yet we tend to think, well, it's because we're, you know, we're good and you know, we're so lovable and we're, we're fairly decent people, and so it wasn't really that hard for, for him to come. But I, I think it's just the opposite, 
I think God choosing to rescue us says more about who he is than who we are. That he is unstoppable, powerless, merciful, gracious, forgiving, that he, he abounds in love and that he is completely upside down. There is only one thing that we can boast in. From our perspective, from every human angle, God's way, God's people, and even, even God's message, it all just seems foolish. That's, that's the third part as we get into the chapter two. Look at, look at what he says there. Even though we're into a new chapter, it's all, it's all connected in this letter. Paul writes, and I, when I came to you, now, think about that, okay? So he's, he's talking back about when he first showed up there in Corinth, right? Um, there, they hadn't even heard of Jesus, right? He came to, to preach the good news and to, to start a church there and among them. So this is at the very beginning. He says, I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, like with, you know, fancy words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. People, it may offend you. And honestly, it may cause everyone around you to think that you're just absolutely foolish. But all we have is a cross. Christ and him crucified, that's, that's it. That, that, that is our hope. That's the source of any possible forgiveness or, or life or, or acceptance. It's, it's, it's all we have even to, to offer to a, a hurting world. Better than mere credentials. Better than mere eloquence. God's power to save. So if you're going to boast, boast in this. If God's going to use you, it's going to be in spite of you. That's, that's how he does it. God works in spite of us. And if you think about it, this means you don't, you don't have to be awesome. In fact, it might be better if you're not. You don't have to have it all figured out, all the answers. You don't have to have the perfect words, the perfect life. You don't have to have all the qualifications to work with kids or students and impact their lives. You don't have to have it all figured out to be a community group leader, to encourage a friend that's, that's going through a difficult time. You don't, you don't have to have it all together to be able to, to share your faith or to, to make a difference at your school or at your workplace. Even Paul showed up in weakness and in fear. But that's when the glory of God shines brightest. Because in circumstances like that, who else could get the credit but God? Yes, you are inadequate. Chances are everybody knows it. Get over yourself. Do something anyway. God does his best work in spite of us. I mean, just, just, just look at what he's done here, right? I mean, I, I love this. I feel like we, we here, we are living proof. Look around, right? We as a church, we are living proof that God has a sense of humor. We are, we are living proof that he can actually, truly use anybody. Because he's, he's done it here. He's done it with us, and he, he will continue to do it. I mean, I, I cannot tell you 
how inadequate I feel up here every week. And I hope that doesn't sound just sort of trite or like false humility or something pastors say or whatever, but being a pastor is a weird job, all right? Because I, mean, I, I, I spend my, my week, or a good portion of it, right, studying this book. And then I get up here and I talk about it for a while, all with the hope that you and I each will somehow embrace a better life in weakness and in fear. I mean, it's why every sermon that I preach, and spoiler alert, it's all about the cross. Everyone, it's all about Christ and him crucified. It's, it's all we have, right? I don't, I don't have any good ideas to make your life easier or happier or more successful. I don't know. Watch Dr. Phil, right? If you want those ideas, they're, they're out there. You've heard all of my good ideas already. What we have is a cross, Christ and him crucified, the God who comes, who, who came to rescue even people like us, people like me. There is only one thing that we can boast in, and that's, that's Jesus. And, and that's it. And if, if, you, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, I mean, I, don't, I hope you hear this. I don't, I don't blame you at all. I don't, I don't want you to feel that in this moment a bit. I mean, right, that's what Paul says. I mean, from every human angle, it is foolishness, and the gospel offends every one of our American 21st century sensibilities. I get it. But I've got to ask, what will you boast in instead? Because it's going to be something. I mean, it's, just, it's just who we are, right? We're, we're going to look for something to build our lives on, to tell us ourselves that our life ha- has meaning, that it's actually worth living, to tell us that, that we're good enough. Where will those insecurities take you, and will it be enough to satisfy you? And could it be that it's, at least in part, that maybe it's your prejudice against this apparent foolishness that forces you to choose this path? Have you taken the cross seriously? Or, or, or just, just dismissed it. And for those of us who are being saved, but do you see how this changes everything? I mean, can you, can you just imagine if we actually believe this stuff was true? How it would affect every, every part of our lives, every relationship, the way it would change our church and our community groups, your family. Your workplace, kids, your, your school, I mean, everything would change. Because how, how could we look down on anyone, right, if we, if we actually believe this? How, how could we be unforgiving or self-centered? Instead of one-upping, instead of bragging, instead of always being consumed with ourselves or hiding, which is really just another form of pride, isn't it? We could actually be free to love. And friends, here's, here's the beautiful irony of the whole thing. I mean, like, we, like we said at the start, right, we, we boast because we're insecure. And maybe you've sat here this morning hearing this message and you feel even more insecure than when you came in, right? We're worse than we think. Uh, God chose you because nobody else would, and if he's going to use you, it will be in spite of you, okay? You're welcome, right? Um, thanks for the pep talk, right? Um, yeah, join us next week. But it, it's, it's true, isn't it? There's, there's just no way around it. Nothing humbles us like God having to die for us. I, I mean, I, I cannot possibly think of a more humiliating truth than the fact that the one who made me, the only way for him to save me, that, that 
my life is such a mess, my heart is so dark, that the only way for him to rescue me was for him to die, for him to give his life. I mean, that is absolutely humiliating, and the gospel offends me. It, it offends every part of who I am. I don't, I don't want to believe that. Yet at the same time, it also tells me that I am more loved than I would ever even dare to dream. Because Jesus was willing to do it. Glad to do it. That he who, who made me, he, he knows me, every part of me. The things that I wouldn't, I wouldn't share with anyone ever that are deep within. He knows them all, and yet he still crossed heaven and earth just to be with me. And that he, he gave his life and he, he rose again so that he could be with me forever. And that now he accepts me fully com- and completely simply because of what his son has done for me. That there's, there's nothing I could possibly, possibly do to earn it. And he, he accepts me not merely as a slave, not merely as a servant, but as his son. That he, he calls me his child. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's because he is. That's the cross. That is the power of God, the power to heal my shame, the power to take the deepest wounds of my heart and to to make something beautiful out of them, the the power to make me whole again, to make my life mean something. And if that's foolishness, call me a fool. If you're going to boast, boast in this. Jesus. Let me pray. God, I, even saying these words, even now in this moment, God, I just, I feel so inadequate. Because I know, I know what you see. And yet you still love me, you still pursue me. And God, I even know that even uh, as we walk away from this time together, for myself and for many of us here, that we, we're going to go back to business as usual, continuing to, to live for the same old things, the same things that we think define us, think the th- things that we think will make us whole. God, would you forgive us? Would you convict us? Would you show us that you are the one who will satisfy and that you love us so much that you came? And God, I pray for those here who, who don't know you, God, those who have heard these words um, through the grid of, of pure foolishness, God, I pray that you would reach out to them. And God, I pray that as we continue our time together this morning, that you would give us humility, um, and yet at the same time, give us joy. For we rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we um, move past this time together, um, I, I don't want us just to rush on, right? We, we can so easily do that, hear, hear certain things, and then kind of move on our way very, very quickly without actually processing personally, intimately, what these things mean for us. So we're going to take some time to do that. Uh, just a very simple next step. There's a card. It uh, should be along the aisle as well as some pens. Take one down, pass it around. Um, we, we know that, you know, doing this kind of thing isn't helpful for everybody. Uh, and yet for many of us to stop and think and to force ourselves to write a few things down uh, can be really helpful. Um, this is just my, my chicken scratches um, in the office this week. But in, in that first column, write out, uh, list out what, what you tend to brag about. You know, the things that you let define you. 
uh, the things, honestly, that are most important in your, in your mind uh, of who you are tend to be most important. Your, your general awesomeness is what you can write there. But that, be specific. Um, and, and the second column, why God shouldn't rescue me. Uh, and you can decide what that is, right? I mean, there's your past, something in your present, something in your, in your nagging heart that you know is, is there that continues to, to haunt you. Uh, write those things out. And in that third column... Uh, why he did rescue you. And and I love that it's not not because of the stuff on the left, as proud of those things as we are, and it's in spite of anything you could possibly write in that middle column. There's only one thing we could boast in. And so in that third column, write Jesus. Let's take some time to work on that now.